The one-size-fits-all solution failed to take advantage of the local knowledge and experience of plant operators. It actually impeded quick adoption of new technologies, and it made the whole process far more expensive than necessary. Some existing plants could cut pollution cheaply, but weren't asked to, while other plants spent a fortune to comply. By the 1980s, Environmental Defense Fund had taken the lead in arguing for a different approach. The key was to mobilize the market, to make far deeper cuts in pollution and at much lower cost. During the 1988 presidential election, strong pressure by New Hampshire environmentalists elevated acid rain as an issue all candidates had to address. Soon after George H.W. Bush was elected president, Environmental Defense Fund President Fred Krupp met with White House counsel C. Boyden Gray. He outlined for Gray how the president's campaign pledge to curb acid rain could be fulfilled using the world's first emissions cap and trading system. He argued that the president could be more ambitious on the environmental goals while still garnering business support. After dozens of meetings, the Bush administration embraced Environmental Defense Fund's proposal and submitted it to Congress, which, led by Senator George Mitchell of Maine and Representatives Henry Waxman of California and John Dingell of Michigan, wrote it into the Clean Air Act of 1990. The law started with the scientific bottom line. It required a 50% cut in sulfur dioxide emissions from the total volume released by fossil fuel-fired power plants, the minimum reduction that atmospheric scientists believed was necessary to begin bringing lakes and rivers back to life. It set a permanent upper limit, a cap, on these emissions, then divvied up the quantity in tons of pollution allowed among the power plants. Even as new sources of pollution came online, the cap was ratcheted down over time so that the total amount of pollution fell. That declining cap Guaranteeing that environmental targets would be met was unprecedented, but it was the second part of the law, the emissions trading system, that completely transformed the paradigm that had historically pitted environmentalism against economic growth. The trading mechanism allowed a power plant that cut its sulfur dioxide pollution more than required to sell those extra allowances and permitted plants that could not find a better way to cut their own emissions to buy them. A new commodities market was born. A plant that could beat its emissions target had a profitable new asset to sell, and financial incentive to develop ways to cut emissions even further. The buyer had the flexibility to find the cheapest way to meet the cap. It was now the power plant operator, not the regulator, who decided how to integrate emissions control into an overall business plan. Two months after the law was passed, Richard Clark, then CEO of Pacific Gas and Electric, America's largest publicly owned utility, sat next to Fred Krupp at a dinner for the President's Commission on Environmental Quality. When you were talking to the President about this cap-and-trade idea, I frankly thought you'd lost it, he said to Fred. But now that there's a way to make money from cutting pollution, I have a dozen proposals for emissions reductions from my own employees on the shop floor and a dozen more from outside consultants. The environment isn't just a money loser. It's a profit center. I have to admit, it's a powerful law. One company that jumped on the new market opportunity was General Electric, GE, whose scrubber technology, 
in the absence of strict caps on emissions or any rewards for overachievers, had not advanced much since passage of the 1977 law. For years, GE had been selling clumsy units that clogged up so frequently that operators had to build two parallel scrubbers to make sure one was always running. Ellie Gall, whose current carbon-cutting work is featured in Chapter 8, was then at GE Environmental Services, and he recalls how quickly that all changed once the cap-and-trade mechanism became law. GE began devoting serious resources to cleanup technology, and Gall's team had its breakthrough. It devised a scrubber that turned the sulfur dioxide into gypsum, which does not gum up the works and is itself a marketable product. Elsewhere, the new law inspired innovative thinking about low-tech solutions. For decades, conventional wisdom held that low-sulfur...